we continue on in First Peter, uh, we're diving into a, a passage that speaks of privilege, of spiritual privilege, of what we have in Christ, uh, where we get to be like living stones. He is a living stone upon which we're built, and we get to be like him. We're called uh, to act like him. I always counted it a privilege uh, to grow up greenhouse. If you know anything about my background, I grew up in a greenhouse family, and there's a greenhouse heritage that goes with that. And so I was part of a family uh, that was known worldwide for their innovation and contribution to an industry. Part of the reason we were known is because there was so many of us. Uh, my mother comes from a family of 16, and everyone had big families. And so I think I'm at 130 first cousins on my mom's side. Uh, and if you're wondering if I know them all, I don't. If you're wondering if I care, I don't. So there we are in the middle of that. I just like the ones I like, you know, the good ones. Uh, but either way, um, I remember I enjoyed that. Some people I know maybe have a different take on, on how they were born and the family they were born in, but I, I enjoyed it. I had the opportunity uh, to travel. I traveled with my dad, traveled with different people. And I always liked the fact that uh, we were known from Holland to different parts of the world. Our family was known, whether it was my dad or my grandfather or my uncles or aunts or even my cousins. It was a privilege to grow up in a family uh, that was known for what they did in an industry and were known to be continuing uh, being innovative. It was an honor to be linked to them. And it came with both advantages and responsibilities. I remember about 15 some years ago, uh, the work I was doing for the company, I just, uh, we, we decided that we would have a booth at a trade show. And if you've ever been to a trade show, it's always full of booths and people are always basically begging you with their eyes for you to come walk in their booth and stop and talk and maybe buy something. And I remember standing there after, it's one of the first times we're doing a trade show and I'm standing there and, and, and the general thing that happens at trade shows is people walk by you, never make eye contact, never show any interest. And so there you stand feeling like a loser because <laughs> no one cares. And I still remember being there and thinking, no one's going to stop by here ever. Why would they talk to, to us about this? And my uncle Tom came and he came to sit for a minute in the booth and the minute turned into an hour. And what I noticed was when my uncle Tom was sitting in the booth, everyone was stopping by. He told me later that he did that on purpose. He says, I'm going to use my reputation to help a family member. Why would he do that? Because I was his people. Whether he wanted to claim me or not, he had to. And so he sat down on purpose. And I remember he sat there and then people came in and, and I realized later on that he directed them to talk to me. And then it was my job to close the sale or close the deal. But I just remember thinking, hey, there's advantages to being linked to the family I have and there's a responsibility he fully expected me to handle my own business, but he was there uh, to connect. Now, the reality is this, and Peter wants the church to know this, is that we're God's people. We enjoy all the wonderful blessings, uh, the privileges of being his redeemed, but we're called to act as God's people as well. That's why he says that we are like living stones and, and that we are then to proclaim and it says the praises and the words you could really use is the excellencies of him who called you, called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We have a responsibility linked to our privileges. And that's what Peter is articulating here. But, but he doesn't 
throw out that responsibility without kind of walking through some foundational components of that responsibility. And so it is a call, a call that we're given that is accomplished first by understanding some things. And the first thing you want to understand is in four and five is that Christ builds his church. So if you look there, uh, to whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed, and the word disallowed, you can use the word rejected by man, indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. Ye also as lively stones or living stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. And I want to make a note as we look at Christ builds his church, and I made one statement for every point. We are his spiritual house. So as you look at him building his church, he's making a very bold statement that we are his spiritual house. And by spiritual, he means this. One writer defined it really well. It says, spiritual means you're influenced and dominated by the Holy Spirit, sharing the characteristics of the Holy Spirit. You are his spiritual house, and to be his spiritual house, you are like him. You are influenced by him. You are controlled by him. And as we continue, even as we started out, it says, to whom coming, or as you come to him, you recognize something. We are drawn to him. Now, the idea that we says we come to him, this is not in a uh, initial salvation that we're talking about, but instead it's to come to him continually. The way it's worded in Greek is this constant action for worship and fellowship. We are constantly approaching God in reverent praise and worship and personal connection. We come to the only sure foundation, yet it is a spiritual privilege, not a begrudged duty. And I want us to to connect those dots as well. One, we are called to an action, an overarching purpose because of the privilege we have, and that is to proclaim his excellencies or to proclaim his praise. I think excellencies does a better job connecting to the Greek because it's all of who God is and what he has done. And the idea that is here is that because of spiritual privilege, we have a spiritual purpose, but that is a privilege, not just a duty, because we tend to grab the Christian life and make everything, well, this is what I have to do because I'm a Christian. And duty and privilege in the true Christian life walk hand in hand. They're not opposite of each other. In our world, you have to do your job so you can have the benefits. And God and his economy and in the Christian life, duty and privilege go hand in hand. They're not on separate aisles, one achieving the other, but instead are together walking forward. And as believers, we need to get over the begrudged duty that we have to give to God, but instead realize the privilege that it is uh, to serve him because we come in intimate, lasting, and personal fellowship with our Savior. That's what Peter is trying to drive home to these churches. You are his spiritual house. You come to him in a deep personal relationship. We come to a living stone. He is the rock upon which his church rests, but he is not an inert object. Because when you think about it, a living stone doesn't make sense. Stone is inert matter that just sits there. And living is something that's active. It is organic. It is it's functioning. And so instead, he is the living stone, alive forever, risen from the dead, and giving life to those 
in him. He's a stone in the sense of his stability, his firm foundation for his church, his children. Yet he is alive in his actions and his relationship with his church and among his church. We don't serve a distant God. We serve an alive God. And that alive God is functioning in our lives and in his church. He's not just floated away and we do our thing here and hope that we get to heaven and it all lines up maybe with what he wanted, but instead recognize that he is involved in his church. And that's what Christianity is. It is alive and it is real. There's no such thing as a dead faith. There's no stuffy tradition that fades away. He is the only reality that matters and the only true source of life. Thus, Peter's use of living stone. Nothing can be in our mind more stable than a stone, and then nothing can be more alive than something that's said to be alive or living. And we come to the chosen, precious one. Christ has always been God's choice. If you read Ephesians, if you read in Peter, if you read all through the New Testament, you find out that since before time began, before the foundations of the world, Ephesians tells us, Christ was set to be the chosen one. In Greek, this is a noun. It's the chosen out one is what it means. Christ has always been precious. Sometimes we think of the word precious and we use that in our vernacular at times. We think it's something that is dear to us, uh, but we miss the weight of the word here in Greek. It means the costly, highly prized, rare one. Another one, someone unequal. There's no one else that can be the precious one. We're not walking around talking about every baby being precious like we do. Oh, that's a precious baby, right? That's not what is happening. Christ as precious is, is beyond cost, beyond comparison. He is rare as in there is no one that could replace or equal what he's done. And that's true even though that living stone has been disallowed or rejected by men. And it's no casual rejection, by the way. The word here for rejection is a word they use for something that you examine and test and then push away. Peter knows firsthand how an expectant nation, his nation, and its leaders were looking for the Messiah and his arrival. When Christ came, it's not like he slipped by the Pharisees and the Sadducees and they, they missed him. They didn't miss him at all. They heard him say that he was the Messiah and they went and examined his claims. And I put here in my notes, let's be honest, his clear biblical proof of being the Messiah. And in a staggering manifestation of blindness, rebellion, and selfish desires concluded that he, Jesus, did not measure up. The reason I mentioned clear biblical proof is that none of them could read the prophet Isaiah and miss the fact that that was pointing to Jesus. And after his death, you'd have an even more glaring illustration that Jesus was the promised Messiah and it pointed to him. But they decided to examine everything, yet in blindness, rebellion, and selfish desires, reject him. And that blindness continues today. But I underline this. That doesn't mean it changes reality. And I want to go back to what I said before. Christianity and Christ is reality. The world will look at us and think that we're religious, right? You have that de definition. We have blinders on. Uh, we don't see the world 
as we need to see it. You go to some of the educationally elite and they'll say that if you're religious, it's a, it's a crutch. You need this to, to overcome life. You go back in the 1800s with many philosophers and they still read them today. I don't know why they've been wrong for hundreds of years, but for some reason we still, still keep chasing them down. And they'll talk about the crutch of religion and that some people need it. Some societies need that to prop them up. And that's just the devil's attempt to twist what is truth and what is not. No matter how much the world doubts, no matter how many scientists who have doctorate degrees and write ridiculous statements about stars um, and, and fanciful tales and, and then want to throw stones at Christianity, want to throw stones at God, no matter how many times they talk and how many times people listen to them, what they say doesn't change reality. What they believe doesn't change reality. The lack of faith vested in the Pharisees and the Sadducees and in the leaders of Israel at that time didn't change the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. He, regardless of how others or you may think, is always the chosen redeemer, the highly prized, unequaled, and uniquely only possible Savior. The world's opinion or analysis will never change the reality of who he is. And I want to make a note, and Peter is telling them this because it's an amazing source of comfort and assurance for us. No matter what our world throws against God, against his son, against his plan, against his word, against his church, it will not change what truth is and it won't change what reality is. Because as we're built into his church upon him, we can know with certainty the stability of his foundation. So as we're drawn to him, as we come to him in worship, the chosen and precious one, as he builds his church, Peter now shares that we are built like him. And I've kind of talked a little bit about this, but we're built as living stones. We share his life and are built into his building, which is the church. And by the way, Peter is the one that uses the building illustration. Paul uses the body, and Peter has this idea of, of a building, a structure. And he's saying, he is the living stone to which we come, but we are to be like living stones. And we've always have been called to act like our Savior and be like him. And, and what He's showing, though, is that stone upon stone, he's going to build his spiritual house because that's what we're there for. We're living stones placed in the wall of his spiritual house. So in other words, we're functional. We serve a living purpose, his purpose, and benefit or a privilege to have access to his power. We are his house. Hebrews 3, 6 at the beginning states this, but Christ as a son over his own house, Whose house are we? And so we're built into the church not to sit there in a stuffy tradition and be a stained glass window if you're lucky or the bottom brick if you're not and just sit there. But instead, we're living stones. We function like he does. And so Peter wants us to recognize that we are his spiritual house. And then he goes on designed for him. So we're not designed for ourselves, but instead designed for him. Uh, we are a holy priesthood. 
That comes with implication. You have to go back to the Old Testament. We're, we're casual about that word. We're in Leviticus right now, and we're understanding what it meant to be priests, what, what the priests did, what were the rules, what are the regulations for the nation of Israel to approach God. And here Peter is saying, you're a holy priesthood. He's not just throwing out titles. He's speaking to a, a, an opportunity, and he's speaking to the direct access we have to him. What once was permissible for only the priest in the Old Testament is now our spiritual privilege. And you have to know the Old Testament. You have to walk through that a little bit to understand how great a privilege it is. If you go through the Old Testament, through stories, you find presumptuous people who cross the line. So I want you to recognize that Peter is not just tossing out some casual things. You're all kings, blah, 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 blah. Instead, he's, he's seriously zeroing them in on truth. And they would know the scriptures. And by the way, the scriptures they would have known would have been Old Testament scriptures. So they would have understood the connection here. You go back to the Old Testament and you look up Korah, rebellious Korah, and he is killed for approaching God King Saul approached God incorrectly, punished for it. Uzzah approached God incorrectly, put his hand on something he shouldn't have touched, and he was killed. It threw David off for a while. And King Uzziah, and King Uzziah is fascinating because he's a king who serves God and then gets arrogant at the end. He gets presumptuous, and God is not having any of it. The punishment was stern. He died with the disease in rebellion against God. God is serious about how he was approached and that it was the responsibility and the privilege of the priests. Now under his new covenant with the sacrifice of his son, the chosen and precious one, we as believers get to approach the Holy One to go into the Holy of Holies in reverent worship. This, and I, I'm trying to bring the weight of this, is a privilege with almost unimaginable benefit. And again, you have to know Israel and you have to know the Old Testament to understand the weight of what Peter is bringing to bear here, to understand what God has given to believers. You as God's child can approach him in a direct personal connection, something we take far too lightly as the unsaved do not have that access. And I want you to realize that. They don't have that direct access. God says, well, wait a second. They pray to God for salvation. Yeah, that's praying to God for salvation. They come in repentance and on their knees. But as believers, we have a, a priesthood of the believer. We are given what was reserved for the Levites, what was reserved for the high priest and Aaron's line. We're given that access. Yet we need to understand that that access comes with a calling it's a responsibility, and that's why he says we are to be giving spiritual sacrifice or living sacrifices. Now, the priest in the Old Testament, we talked about this. You come at the tabernacle, they would carry the, the, the offering would be placed on the altar, and the altar was up. You would carry up your offering, and that's exactly what they're saying here. Peter's saying, bring up your offering to the Lord, and, and a priest had to walk in the presence of the Lord, this is no casual. We are way too flippant on how we approach God. The priest, 
would, would need to be pure of heart. They could have nothing that would have made them unclean. And, and as we work through Leviticus, we'll understand the implications there. The people of Israel came to the Lord and they would be pure when they approached God. They didn't just wander into the tabernacle area and say, here's my sacrifice, but instead had walked through a serious process knowing they were able to approach God. And so they would come with a pure heart, focusing on honoring God, offerings that are acceptable to God, as Peter says, through Jesus Christ, offerings consistent with his word and his character. We give to God what God wants and what God has told us we are to give. And we give it how he told us to give it through Jesus Christ, acceptable in line with who he is and what he has told us in his word. As Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies and that word present is carry up your bodies, a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, The standard is not you, and it's not your neighbor, it's not your friend, it's not even us as the church. The standard is him, which is your reasonable service, which is what you're supposed to do. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove, show what is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. As believers, our spiritual privileges begin at salvation. We're privileged to have access to God directly. As priests, privileged to offer spiritual sacrifices as his church and his spiritual house. We're privileged to offer to God. See how privilege and duty come tied hand in hand? We are to offer sacrifices, but we are privileged, allowed to offer sacrifices. So I put a couple questions. Have we been offering spiritual sacrifices to our Savior? Does that define us? If you look at your life, do you see spiritual sacrifices? Have we been functioning as living stones in his spiritual house, alive and aligned with the living stone, our Savior? Because if you're going to be a living stone, there's only one living stone that you can be like, and that's Christ. Otherwise, you're just a dead piece of rock. And are we truly spiritual, influenced and dominated by the Holy Spirit? I hear people talk about, I have a spiritual guider. I have spiritual guidance. This is my spiritual life. When you're spiritual, you're influenced and dominated by the Holy Spirit. That's spiritual. Not our view of a spiritual, or not the median you find, or not the thing you chase down, or not the way you feel when you're in the woods. That's not what spiritual is. Spiritual is is dominated and influenced by the Holy Spirit. We are his and called to be like him, living stones placed perfectly in the walls of his church, functioning not as inert matter, but alive and grounded in him. A privilege, because as Peter notes, he builds his church, but he also continues and we find that Christ also honors his church. Look at verses six through eight. It says, wherefore also does it contained in the scripture? And by the way, you see that in the New Testament? They're pointing back to the Old Testament. And we're going to talk about where he points in the next couple of verses. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. And he's quoting Isaiah there. And he goes on, unto you therefore which believe he is precious. Or you could read that even uh, for those who believe will be honored because we hold him precious and therefore he's going to honor us in, in the way that we're honoring him. But unto them which be disobedient, 
The stone which the builders disallowed or rejected or refused, the same is made the head of the corner. And a stone of stumbling, by the way, he's quoting Psalm there, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. And so we see that Christ is going to honor his church. We align with Christ, who is the cornerstone. Peter connects first to the prophet Isaiah, who said in Isaiah 28, 16, Therefore thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation, a stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. He that believeth shall not make haste. In other words, they won't be run off. They won't, be, they won't find Christ to fail. Jesus is the one predicted in Isaiah, the costly, irreplaceable chief stone of the building, the one after which every angle and measurement depends. Cornerstone means main cornerstone, but it also means everything aligns with him. It's set there. If you don't align with the cornerstone, the building doesn't stand. And so that's why he's called the chief cornerstone. (coughs) And the privilege, the blessing is that the redeemed, true believers are secure in him. Whoever believes in him shall not be put to shame. Honor is for you who believe, or he is found to be precious. (coughs) There are some famous public figures, Christian singers, and I use that word with quotes, supposed Christian singers, kids of famous preachers who walk away from the faith because they say this, that Christianity, and really what they're saying is Christ has fallen short. It doesn't measure up. They basically say that Christians are delusional fanatics. It creates a stir, right? Someone who puts out supposedly Christian music as a Christian and then says, I'm not a Christian anymore, and the world just goes wild over that. A famous preacher's son walks from the faith, and they say, look, (coughs) what a colossal failure of Christianity. It always creates a stir, but it should never rock our assurance in our Savior. He will never fail us, Peter says. And no amount of supposed evidence, no amount of people who supposedly find him inadequate is going to change it. And I want us to kind of be grounded as these apostates come out of the woodwork and, and chatter about what they no longer believe in. And the world grabs that as proof that Christ couldn't be real or Christ couldn't be the truth or this is some fanciful tale that we're following and come back to what Peter said. Uh, They walk through their own leaders evaluating Christ and stepping away in a blind manifestation of rebellion. We aren't to be surprised (coughs) when we see it. It's not that we take it casually, but it doesn't rock our faith or make us apologetic about what we believe in because our faith is secure. Those who sincerely believe in Christ and him will never know any real disappointment because of him. Christ is never going to come up short, ever. When we get to heaven and stand before God and understand this, in God's holiness, his wrath must be poured on sin, that's when you're going to really realize that he doesn't come up short. And those who sincerely believe in him will never actually fall out of his wall, so to speak, or out of his spiritual house. Because we got to go all the way back to the first point. Who builds the church? Christ does. And it's built 
with his people, which is us. And when he places someone in his house, they don't fall out. We're not looking at chunks of the church's wall falling out when such and such person denounces the faith. We look at someone who's pretending to be part of the wall and then we're seeing that they're not. It doesn't rock our faith. Paul lists in Romans chapter 8 some rhetorical questions whose answers confirm our security in Christ. He says in verses 31 through 35, not a full reading, if God be for us, who can be against us? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then Paul gives the bold assertion of God's unfaltering victory in verses 39 through, or 37 to 39. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor heights, nor depth, nor any other creature. By the way, do you, is there anything missing there in Paul's statement at all? It takes my breath away trying to read it without taking a breath. Uh, my lung capacity is low. It's because I'm out of shape. But either way, we, got, we know why, at least. Uh, but, but understand what he's trying to communicate to us. There is no famous preacher's son, Christian singer, politician, world leader, you name it, author, scientist, anyone that can say anything to diminish who God really is and what he really accomplished. None of that shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. But there are those who reject, who run away, who refuse to acknowledge the truth that Christ is the cornerstone and everything hinges and is anchored upon him. There's people that want to deny the facts about Christ because he's either the cornerstone or he's nothing. And they say, well, then he's he's nothing. And Peter warns or wants the church to know without a doubt that those who do so are destroyed without him. It's not just another opinion. It is destruction for them. We are secure in him and nothing this world can do will alter or change that or or move him in any way, shape or form or redefine him. But those who are without, who have rejected, have pushed back, have done all these things, they're not just have another opinion. They are destroyed without him. Peter quotes more Old Testament scripture, reaching now into the psalm, Psalm 118.22. It says, The stone which the builders refused has become the headstone of the corner. This refused or disallowed or rejected stone, again, is talking about something that was tested by them and then found unsatisfactory. Peter is highlighting the rejection by the religious leaders of Jesus' day. They found Christ unfit for them. Jesus was counted worthless by them because he didn't fit their profile of the Messiah. They wanted a Messiah to come in and get rid of Rome. They wanted a Messiah to come in and keep them at the top of the echelon. They wanted a Messiah to do what they wanted. And so by looking at the Messiah, and I want you to recognize something. They weren't novices with Scripture. They knew God's Word. They knew where the Messiah would be to be born. They knew all these things. And they completely missed it. Not because they made a blunder, but because they chose to miss it. And the same rings true of unbelievers today. There's no casual disbelief. There's no accidental disbelief. They stumble and are offended by Him. Now Peter links to Isaiah 8, 14. 
And he shall be for a sanctuary, but for a stone of stumbling and for a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel, for a gin and for a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And Isaiah is an amazing prophetic book speaking to his current time and the future that was, was happened and then future looking forward to Christ. It's just a book that I hope to dive into. I hope that we can go through a, a study on Isaiah and preach through it because it is amazing. It says they stumble, meaning they take offense at, reject, and then fall over him. So here are the religious leaders. He's, he's given a picture. They try to throw out this cornerstone. No, I don't want him to be the cornerstone. I don't want him to be that. And they try to throw it away. And all they end up doing is tripping themselves up to their own destruction. That's what he's saying. And he goes on, they disobey, which conveys their life choices. They've not only refused to believe the gospel, but have also chosen to live lives of disobedience and rebellion against God. They're not neutral in this. And you'll notice that the world is not neutral against them. As one writer uh, notes, it indicates that many who reject Christ do so because of moral disobedience to God in their lives. They disobey the word of God and thus are destined for his judgment. The Bible is not tricky at all. If you disobey God, if you reject God and reject what he's done from the beginning of time, he makes it perfectly clear what you're destined for. When the world writes, only God can judge me, I always say, and he will judge you. And he's made that very, very clear. But as his redeemed, we can know with certainty the security found in Christ. In him, we will never be disappointed. In him, we can know that we follow the truth. But here's a few questions to ponder. How often, though, are we apologetic for our faith? How often do we present his truth with some sense of awkwardness, like we're crazy? Or like faith is a crazy thing? Or like believing in Jesus Christ is like, whoa, you're a bit religious. How often... And just think about it for a second. Are you apologetic or awkward when you present your faith? How often do we pander to our unbelieving society in their attempt to shame us? Instead of standing as privileged citizens of God's eternal kingdom, I know how often I've struggled to realize and act up to the security of my faith. We, we, we get pigeonholed very easily into thinking we're weird and the Bible does say we're peculiar, right? I don't want to blame Christ for our weirdness, though. The fact is we are set apart. There's no doubt about that. We are different. But our response to being different from unbelievers is almost to apologize for believing the truth. And I'm not talking about being obnoxious. I think we do a good enough job on our own there but I am talking about how we present the gospel, but even more importantly, how you feel when you talk about your faith. Because I know where my mind goes, and suddenly it's very much a duty. Well, I'm a Christian, so it's time for me to make this awkward. It's time to dive into this. And that's because I've split privilege and duty apart where it's not supposed to be split. Because it's a privilege to share truth, to share his truth. It's a privilege to be a citizen of his kingdom, the greatest privilege. And so I should walk into the opportunities to proclaim him, not apologetically and not because the world's going to kick and scream and hate me, 
but walk into it with confidence, recognizing it's an opportunity for me not to fulfill my duty, but to talk about my Savior and to talk about truth. See, the truth of the matter is they're the ones stumbling over the truth to their own detriment. All of their mockings and supposed cuts will never change the reality of his place. They are never going to remove him as the cornerstone. He is the cornerstone upon which everything is built. He honors those who believe and guarantees righteous punishment. Let's be honest, eternal judgment for those who do not. But we're not the unbelievers. Instead, we're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a people for his own possession. And within that context, we find that Christ instructs his church. Verses 9 and 10, it is a very direct and straightforward instruction. Take a look at it. But transition, movement. He's talked about those who believe, those who don't, the punishment for those who do. God's word is very clear about what they're destined to. They're destined for judgment for what they've done. There's no bones about it, right? He doesn't hide that at all. It's, it's, it's right there for you to read. And then he says, but that's not who you are. You're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people that you should show forth the praises and that word praises We think of singing praises. Praises are excellencies. It is who God is and what he has done. It is the everything in Greek, the everything of what he he is, the essence of God. We're making him known. And who is he? He's the one who's called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. (laughs) And then he talks more, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. He instructs his church in a very direct way, but he he ties into the purpose of all this privilege here in these verses. He's talked about how he builds his church and we're to be living stones. He's talked about the honor we receive for believing him. We'll never be shamed. We'll never be, be disappointed. He'll never fail us. And then he says, but He's also not going to fail the unbeliever because he's going to actually do exactly what he told him he would do in his word, judgment. And then he goes on to who we are and tucked in the middle of it, he says, we are his proclaimers. This is the overarching purpose or responsibility of our spiritual privilege. We proclaim his praises, the excellencies of him. We are to declare all he is and has done We are to advertise, to publish boldly his gospel. You see, and that's the context surrounding what we're supposed to do is surrounded by us being set aside for him. And again, remember, this church would have been reading the scriptures. They were reading the Old Testament. So here, Peter is driving again to Exodus 19.6, which is Moses speaking of Israel. And you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. Peter takes that Old Testament language and connects it to Christ's call to and description of his church. Here we are woven in as the, Old, the, the New Testament talks about. We've been grafted in and we see the, the blessing and the benefit. We are, and this is what God told Israel and what he's telling his church, we are owned by him, but not in how we perceive that word. How do we perceive ownership? If I own it, it's mine. It's, my, it's either my collection. It's for 
my storage. It's, 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 it's mine, right? And it can and have many ugly connotations tied to it. But as we look at being owned by him, instead, we need to see, as one writer notes, that each saint is God's unique possession, just as if that saint were the only human being in existence. That's the connotation Peter's bringing. If you're not owned, and it is true, we're owned, we're not our own. We are his, we belong to him. But when you belong to him, it's this unique and precious belonging. Like you're the only one. Be owned by him is the greatest privilege we could know. And so, as such, we are, as one person wrote, a race chosen out, king, priest, a set-apart nation. A nation that is redeemed by him. In time past, we were not a people, but now are a people of God, which had not attained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. We all were once separated from God on the outside, yet he extended his mercy and called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And that's a beautiful summary of our privilege as we recognize that we are to be set aside for him because we have been redeemed by him. And in the midst of that is where we find that clear objective in response to our spiritual privilege. What is your responsibility We see the advantage. We see the privilege. Now, what is the responsibility tied to it? Proclaim his excellencies. We have one overarching purpose as a result of our spiritual privilege, that we proclaim the gospel. It's not something we do. It's what we do. Peter is connecting these churches and remember what they're facing. Persecution is, is ramping up. Being a Christian who proclaims the gospel has become something that costs you something. And right tucked in this, before he's going to dive into how we submit and live in this world and then how we deal with suffering as he closes out, he's saying that we are to proclaim the gospel, to be zeroed in. MacArthur notes this, Christians have the distinct privilege of telling the world that Christ has the power to accomplish the extraordinary work of redemption. We have the distinct privilege. So I want to close this morning's message with some simple thoughts or questions. Do we really see the privilege of our life with him and living for him? Or worded another way, do you see the Christian life as a privilege or just a mundane duty? Have you split the two? Because that's what we tend to do, right? Well, I'm going to heaven, but I have to do this. Instead of, I'm going to heaven and I get to do this, this, and this. Do we see privilege of our life with him in living form? Are we acting like living stones? Stones have the sense of being foundational, to be aligned with him, to build a structure, to be something you can rest a roof on. They can be part of a building. They are secure, not changed and whipped about by the wind, which Peter will talk about in 2 Peter and Jude talks about and James talks about. We are to be stable and locked in and understand what we believe, but we're to be living stones. We're functional for him. Are we living as a spiritual house? And let me go back to the definition of spiritual. Are we dominated and influenced by the Holy Spirit? Are we confident, and I put the word unashamed, of him 
knowing he will never fail us. Are we approaching this world not apologetically, but confidently? I'm not ashamed of being a Christian. It's a privilege because I know he will never fail me and that we're guaranteed certain victory. And then are we proclaiming him and his excellencies? Are we confidently proclaiming his gospel as his privileged and called children? Are we doing what we should be doing in light of all the spiritual privilege uh, that we have? First uh, Peter 1, 12 through 17, Paul writes, I thank him who's given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I've received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of all or full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, meaning the sinner, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Do we recognize our spiritual privilege and do we fulfill the responsibility attached to that? Let's pray together. If I thank for the opportunity we have to come into your house to come here as your church and to worship you, to lift you up, to point the world to the only solution for sin, the only reason for living. Help us have hearts that recognize the privilege it is to be your children. <clears throat> Help us to be a spiritual house, to understand that our lives are supposed to be influenced and dominated by the Holy Spirit. That to be spiritual equates to being like you. Peter makes that abundantly clear. You're the living stone and we're supposed to be living stones. We're called to be a part of your house. We're called to act as your children. To understand the abundant gifts you've given us. As your church, you've given us the right to approach you, direct access. Something the priest only did in the Old Testament. We're given the opportunity to share the only truth this world ever needs to hear. And I ask that as we walk into our lives this week, this month, this year, that we will be living stones, emulating our Savior, functioning for your purpose. In your precious and holy name, amen.